I'll ask you to turn again to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2, we will pick up after verse 7. We'll pick up now at obviously verse 8 and continue Luke's account of that great night when the angels visited the shepherds. Uh, We have been going through in the month of December these various hymns that Luke records as he did his research and under inspiration of the Spirit as he wrote his gospel. There was the hymn of Mary as uh, she entered into uh, the, the room there with Elizabeth. There was uh, Zacharias's song that we looked at. Now we're looking at the angel's song, the occasion and what they will, will say and sing. Theirs is the short, theirs, it's very short, but it is still very important. And next week we will look at uh, Simeon's song. And that will conclude these opening songs that Luke uh, has for us. But let us hear this account again from Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 8 through verse 20. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And that is the end of the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, we are most likely quite familiar with this text Would you deliver us from some sense of already comprehending everything about it, viewing it as an old story? Where's the new? Oh, Lord, help us to see afresh how relevant the truths are that are contained herein. We pray this in your name. Amen.
One person speaking about our Lord's birth into this world said this, The hinge of history is on the door of a Bethlehem stable. And you know, you stop and think about that, and he's really quite correct. That's exactly what our calendars reflect, isn't it? At least I still, I'm sure there's probably some politically correct way to deal with dates and years, but we, I still refer to B.C. and A.D. And the separation point is that which is best understood, uh, an attempt to understand precisely when our Lord was born. Yes, the hinge of history is on the door of a Bethlehem stable. This is the different. This is the event that makes all the difference, literally, in the world. You know, there are all kinds of perspectives concerning Christmas. Supermarkets and grocery stores say it's a time to eat, and we generally do a pretty good job of that. Uh, Department stores and the internet say it's a time to buy and to give gifts and such and to get gifts. Relatives say it's a time to get together. Sports people, ESPN, say it's a time to watch bowl games and, and those things. Even churches have various perspectives on what it means to celebrate Christmas. And so I think it's important for us to do exactly what we're doing today, to let's go back and let's consider what happened that night, especially how heaven views it. The angels come to shepherds. And so that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to go back and look at the message and the actions of God's original messengers that night. And we'll include those shepherds because they too, I think, got, got it right that night. And so we'll be looking at three things. And the first one is that the first Christmas for the angels and shepherds was a time for joyful celebration. See verse 10 that we read there. The shepherds are in the field. The angels come. Or First of all, it is a singular angel. Some think, as with Zechariah and Mary, the angel Gabriel could be. It's not said there, but a single age angel comes. And the glory of God comes. And look at what he says in verse 10. I, you know, they are terrified. I'm sure we would be as well. Fear not. But he says, I'm bringing you good news of a great joy. A great joy. The first Christmas for the angels and shepherds was a time for joyful celebration. Essentially, every word, every significant word in, in uh, what the angel says is important. Uh, I often find that to be true. When someone from heaven speaks, quite often in the Bible, it's rather terse, rather short, but how meaningful. I mean, uh, Jesus I'm the bread of life. You know, what is that? Five words? Pretty significant, don't you think? I am the way, the truth, and the life. All of these things. And the angel comes and he says, quit being afraid. Stop fearing. It's a time to rejoice greatly because I have I got a message for you. 
The angels have come from the throne room of heaven with a message of good news. Matter of fact, what we translate in our English version, good news, is the verb form that is used throughout the, the New Testament. Guess what? It's used for the preaching of the gospel. That's what, that's what good news is. That's what gospel means. And that's what the angel is saying. A more literal translation would be something like, I'm going to gospel you with great joy. I've got great news, good news for you. Don't be afraid. Now this comes at a time, it would not have been an easy time. Whether a shepherd or almost any common, average uh, Jewish person in Jerusalem or in, in Israel to rejoice. It would have been difficult economically. It would have been difficult perhaps in all kinds of ways. ways. The, the difficulty of being shepherds, the hardships that are there out in the fields and such with, with the sheep. It would not have been an easy time to rejoice particularly because you're under Roman rule and oppression. And, and any godly Jew could look and see that things had been corrupted with the priesthood and with the Sadducees and the rulers of the people. It would not have been an, an easy time to rejoice in Judah at this. But these angels are saying something greater than the Roman invasion and rule has happened this night has taken place. The God of heaven has acted according to his word to save his people. And so I want us to understand here as we look at just this one point, you know, as I mentioned in the prayer, holidays and especially Christmas can be a time of loneliness, sadness uh, for past experiences. Sometimes we're not able to get to our families I remember one lonely Christmas I had when I was in the military and couldn't get home to my family. And you know, you just kind of wasn't married. I was out in Colorado and you, you know, kind of bouncing around, just, you know, wondering what to do with yourself. Holidays can be that way. But we are to remember. That when we talk about the true celebration of Christmas, Christmas is the commemoration of Jesus Christ coming into this world, the indescribable gift of God. And he comes, did you pick up on what the angel said? It's good news of great joy that'll be for all the people for unto you. We are to personalize this message. The Lord Jesus Christ has come into this world for you to believe in him and to experience all that he accomplishes in this entrance and in his life to come and how that will proceed. It is for you to know this greatest joy. The second thing I want to mention here. The angel doesn't just say, be glad, but he now really tells us why we can do that. Why we can hear this, this good news. 
Um, so the second point is the first Christmas was, for the angels and shepherds, a full surrender to the true nature of the child born. I'll say that again. The first Christmas for the angels and for the shepherds was a full, wholehearted, whole-souled surrender to who this child really is. Mary's song, I structured that around praise of God. And we talked about how she, she praised God for his personal dealings in her life. And she praised God for the attributes that are revealed and how he acts in history and for his faithfulness according to his word. When we looked at Zechariah's song, we thought about what it meant when God visited his people in terms of their salvation. In other words, what's a definition of being saved? And we looked at, uh, if you'll remember, if you were here, we looked at some, I'll use the idea of hanging pictures on the wall, uh, a picture of, of the prison cell being opened, of liberty, a picture of our enemies being defeated, a picture of forgiveness of sins, a picture of hope and peace, because the sunrise from on high comes across the mountains and floods our darkness, and we're able to rise and walk in the light. Well, all of that rests on just who is this child. And that's what the angel's song focuses on. And that's what we're going to speak about. This verse 11, he says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David. And he gives three crucial titles to this child that lays in a manger because there's no room in the inn, clothed in swaddling cloths. He is Savior. He is Christ. He is the Lord. That is who has been born into this world. Long had been the years, the centuries, that the Jewish people had waited for this time to come more importantly, this one person to come. Isaiah 7. Isaiah writes approximately 700 years before this event. Isaiah 7.14 is that classic verse that speaks of the virgin birth. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Then, of course, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called. Here are some more titles. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God is the one who would break the yoke of Israel's burden. Their oppressors would be defeated. They would be delivered from danger. And now this day in the city of David, these prophecies and promises, and there are a boatload of them, are fulfilled. The first Christmas was the day long waited for. 
now in the perfect moment of history, the Savior is born. But I said, who is this child? What is his true nature? And I've mentioned these three titles. And there's a sense in which we've already covered what it means to be a Savior. That's what we talked about with Zechariah's song. And I think you have a good understanding of what it means for someone to bear the name Christ. It is the word Messiah. It is which all of both of those words mean anointed. This is that special person prophesied of old. Of all those 39 books of the old, what we call the Old Testament. They look to a person that would be God's anointed. The one that he selected to be the supreme prophet, priest, and king. But I think the greatest of the titles that is here is the word, the title, Lord. This is the Savior Christ, the Lord. In Greek, the word is kurios. It is the word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, to translate for God, for Yahweh, for the God of Israel. And so there is a declaration of, from the angel, literally, this is God in human flesh dwelling with his people. It is that spectacular an event. When we think about these three titles, we can join them all together then and speak of God, Yahweh, coming in human form as the promised Christ, the anointed prophet, priest, and king, and he's going to save his people. Paul will link all three of these titles together in Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21, particularly verse 20. He says, in another context, he says, but our citizenship, to the Philippians, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will transform our bodies, and on he goes with that. And we need to see something that Luke is saying here, these centuries ago. This message is nothing less than revolutionary. Astounding. Because you've got to consider the Roman context. I, re I read, starting with Luke 2, verse 1, in our earlier reading, and in that you'll remember, Caesar Augustus has established a tax, a registration, and so that creates this movement. And so in those opening verses, verses 1 through 3, we see the great Caesar Augustus with his decree that all the world should be taxed. Did you know that, uh, that this kind of language was applied to Caesar Augustus and to the Caesars after him? The title Lord was applied to Caesar. He was the divine Caesar who was Lord. His power was absolute. His prerogatives were unchallengeable. His rights and entitlements were beyond question. There's an ancient inscription that has been found, and it reads this way. Whereas the providence, this, this poet writing, speaks about some generic providence, 
Whereas the providence which has guided our whole existence and which has shown such care and liberality has brought our life to the peak of perfection in giving to us Augustus Caesar, whom providence filled with virtue for the welfare of mankind, and who being sent to us and to our descendants, I'm still quoting, sent to us as a savior, has put an end to war. What is putting an end to war? It's the idea of peace, right? Peace on earth. All of this kind of language. They, they literally took the title, the savior of the world and the savior of the inhabited earth. Various documents of the time. You see that terminology being used about the Caesars. And it even goes on. That this, this will be the defining point in the Roman Empire that sends so many of your earlier brothers and sisters to the Colosseums and to death because the Romans viewed Christians as disloyal to the Roman Republic because there was the emperor worship cult. All you had to do was put upon your lips, Caesar is Lord. And Christians can't do that. Still today, we cannot do that. No, Jesus is Lord. And they went to death for that. The Caesars demanded worship as well as obedience. Not just taxes, but they demanded sacrifices. And on and on. I mean, it is literally a, 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 a complete uh, contrast, a, a competing religion that is there. You know, what the, you know what the appearance of a Caesar was described as, as he would enter one of his cities? It was his parousia, the Greek term that is used in the New Testament to talk about our Lord's second coming. So this is, when we say, when we hear this angel say, this baby that has been born is the Savior who is Christ, the anointed one, who is Christ, the Lord. This is an angelic message. This is a heavenly message that says you're not going to find your Savior in some political machinery, some, some earthly organization. And all of the Jewish people are to hear the message and say, our Messiah has come. The great error of Judaism today is still the blindness to say, Oh, we are waiting. We are waiting. No, the message from heaven that night was your Christ has been born. And we need to hear this message as well. I said that we're in our second point, that the angels celebrated the first Christmas by a full surrender to who this child is. He is Lord. That means that really non-Christians, since they reject by definition Jesus and his lordship, can never truly celebrate Christmas. But what about us, those here today testifying to being 
bought by the Lord, faithfully following him. Well, we don't follow him faithfully. We don't truly celebrate Christmas as we would consciously, purposefully walk in disobedience. To celebrate Christmas is to surrender afresh to who this child is. Jesus Christ, now risen and exalted as Lord over my time, my finances, my family, my future, my health, my behavior, my marriage, my children and their training, my job, my performance, my hobbies. There is no area of my life exempt from his lordship. And I do not make him Lord. He is the Lord. He is the Lord. And the only proper reception of him is to humbly trust him in what he's done for us to save us and to submit to him, to surrender to him. Well, the third thing that's here. We said, by way of review, the angels and shepherds, the first Christmas was a time for joyful celebration. And they could be joyful in the celebration because they understood who it was that has entered human history. There is a full surrender to the true nature of the child born. And then this third point is that the birth of Christ for the angels and shepherds is a declaration to the world of where true peace can be found. We come now for really for the first time to the consideration of the angel's song. I mentioned to you that it was rather short, but we already now have the, uh, the foundation of the song. In other words, the song is simply in verse 14 and really is composed of two, two lines, two statements. Glory to God in the highest. There is a heavenward direction to their statement. And then there is an earthly direction to their statement in the second line. And on earth, peace. And on, we'll talk about that. And so we can understand, though, their jubilation, their joy, their singing, their praise because of what we have just considered. Who has been born? Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. So the song really uh, is about the benefits of what Jesus accomplishes. And we want to take uh, just a moment, the Godward dimension, the Godward direction of the hymn. Glory to God in the highest. We need to note now that this singular angel has been joined by, by what it says. He's joined with a multitude of the heavenly host. And they're praising God and singing and saying these things. These angels, think about it, eternal beings, sinless beings. They are, when it, when it says glory to God, it means they are seeing new dimensions. After all of these centuries, they, they are seeing new dimensions of the God they incessantly worship, of his wisdom of his power, of his grace. New aspects of God's nature are being revealed to those clear-eyed and immortal spirits. And they're praising God. One person, I think rightly so, 
makes a point of application out of this. You know, angels need no forgiveness. These angels love the gospel. Isn't that an interesting observation? They are in essence saying, this is the greatest thing we've ever seen. Remember how Gabriel described himself to Zechariah in Luke 1, verse 19. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've thought about that for a long time now. What must it be like to stand in the presence of God as an eternal being and to witness creation and to witness the the flood and to witness uh, the fall of Jericho to witness David slay, slaying Goliath, all of these things that, that they, and they've been sent on messages and every time they come and send a, and tell a message, it happens. There's never been a word of God to fall without fulfillment. And, and so all of these things mount up and they come that night and they say, wow, this is greatest thing I've ever seen. Glory to God in the highest. And the one that suggested this to me, I think, uh, I like his application. He says, these angels are genuinely excited about the gospel. and They don't need to be forgiven. They're without sin. And he asks the questions then and makes a statement. He says, you know, we ought to be more excited about the gospel. What do you think about the gospel? Are you excited about it? Does your praise of God for his grace in the gospel rival the praise of the angels? We have every reason to praise God more for the gospel than the angels because we are the beneficiaries of the gospel. I think that's rather an insightful application for us. These angels... They sing out glory to God in the highest. Look at what we have seen now. And then there's the earthward direction of the hymn, On earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The great blessing of this birth, what it will accomplish in this kind of one pregnant word, so to speak, it's summed up in the word peace. And once again, you've got to wonder what the angels think. When they look down upon this earthly scene of so much strife and discord and unrest, Christ's work is to bring peace into all human relations. And he succeeds wherever he is honored as Lord. There is peace. There is the removal of of opposition and sin and all that would separate me from a relationship with the living God in what he's accomplished. There is the inner healing of what I am in my soul and in, in my mind, in my heart. Those inner turmoils can find a reintegration, a remaking of what I'm supposed to be as a person made in God's image. There is as well the possibility of peace in human relations. The church is to be characterized as a place of wholeness and peaceful relations. There is an ability to relate 
to my life events to have peace. In a sense, no matter the hardships that come my way, where Christ is honored as Lord, there is peace. And these angels know that and they sing it out to God's people. There is peace on earth with those God has called to himself. Well, let's go to a conclusion. So what is it when we talk about the birth of Christ, Christmas? We've said that that event for the angels and shepherds was a time for joyful celebration. It is definitely a time for a true surrender to the nature of that child born. And it is a declaration to the world where true peace can be found. And I just want to ask a couple of questions. First question is this. Is this a day in which you understand that you are a sinner in need of a Savior who is Christ the Lord? Have you today confessed that you are helpless, that you are hopeless, that you cannot save yourself, that religious ritual can't save you, even the ritual of Christ's church cannot save you? God saves through Christ. I know I can't save myself. And no one born of Adam can save me. No religion of man can save me. I know I've sinned against God and I'm rightly under his judgment and I'm helpless and I'm hopeless to do anything about it. But here's the second question then. Will I confess with great joy the good news that God has come in Jesus of Nazareth to save his people? And to hear again What we said earlier, that old message from John 3.16, For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. If you need any further explanation, feel free to pull me aside and talk with me about that, if that's your case today. But there's a second category of people, obviously, and I think it's most of you. What about those of us who have surrendered and embraced Christ as Savior and Lord? Simple question this Christmas season. Isn't this a Christmas time when we need to join these angels and announce to the world, here is the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior. Will we join the angels Will we join them in having our lives governed by him? Will we join him, them, and shout to the world, fear not, for I've got some good news for you. Isn't it interesting that the shepherds mimicked, imitated the angels that night? They went with haste, saw that baby in that manger, and they left it said, glorified and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. As had been told them. And that's the dynamic from the angel's song. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Lord, by the power of your word and spirit, help us to hear the good news of our Savior. And may we find peace in full surrender to him. This is our prayer. Amen. Turn to him.